Welcome to the Insights to Action Inspirational Insights Podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm the host, and I am really looking forward to talking with Jan de Visch from Connect Transform in Belgium. Uh, Jan is also the, in addition to being a practitioner with the organizational collaboration space, but he's also uh, the professor. I'm going to let you explain because I've already forgotten. (laughs) It's executive professor. I knew it would happen. It's really early in the morning here. I'm going to use that as my excuse. But, um, you know, it's executive professor at the University of Flanders. Uh, So in Leuven, which is just outside of Brussels, for those of you that don't know, I had the pleasure of being in Leuven a couple of years ago, working with the company. We both met through the Requisite Agility Conference. Both of us were mm-hmm. panelists on the, uh, in the program. And, and just listening to your work, I just thought, oh, great. Here's someone who's done a really awesome job at the depth as well as the breadth of, you know, how do we look at these things? And, and I really appreciated the consciousness you bring to the topic. So let's, let's just kind of explore a couple of things. First of all, we started our conversation informally about gardening mm-hmm. and how a plant that does extremely well in Mediterranean soils and a fig plant in, the, in your gardens case, you know, grows really well under certain conditions, then you bring it into a different soil condition and different things happen. And we, we sort of touched on that as being a metaphor for organizations. Do you want to just comment on that? Let's start with that. And then we can play around with some of the other things. Well, uh, many uh, companies are not uh, aware of how technology uh, and multiple technologies simultaneously affect uh, uh, how they work together. Uh, and that technologies influence both how people uh, uh, interact with each other, how culture is affected, how the business model, the operating model, uh, it always almost affects everything uh, in companies. Uh, Some label it as the fourth industrial revolution, other uh, given labels such as blue economy or circular economy. And you have plenty of other labels, but the, uh, the uh, red line uh, in it, uh, what connects those different developments is that uh, often complexity increases. And uh, complexity increases, people uh, tend to either narrow or broaden the complexity which are confronted with. And the essence of my work is on... Uh, helping teams coping with the diversity and interpretation of perspectives of the ongoing changes and how to redesign, reconceptualize their organization, taking into account uh, how complexity affects their uh, business and operating model at one side and at the other side, helping individuals and teams cope with complexity in a different way. We're talking about complexity here, and there's a lot of organizations that couldn't identify it as such, but but yet they're experiencing it, and, and in some cases, at least with the clients you're working with, acting on it. You know, we've got a pandemic that has gotten the drawn people's attention to what's actually created a wonderful opening for doing things differently. However, at least from all the people I've been talking to on either side of the water, you know, over in Europe or in North America, there's been a pedaling backwards towards retrenching. 
How, in your observation, in your experience, can people use, can companies use these, these times now to really gain greater fluency with, with, the, with the uncertainty of complexity and also with the, the different kind of thinking it calls for because it does not respond well to linear thinking? So, Two, two reactions. The first one is that the uh, ability of uh, most organizations to cope with that change is overestimated uh, because they do not take into account the developmental differences of people. By developmental differences of people, I mean that the new situation demands a kind of a different perspective to cope with it. And uh, not every collaborator in an organization has evolved towards, uh, for example, more, more self-organizing way of work. Self-organizing way of work is uh, an ideal and a kind of belief set. But if you look at research, less than 30% of people from cognitive developmental point of view, reach the phase of being able to work in an independent or self-steering way. So organizations not taking into account developmental differences might be confronted with a huge positive reaction of people moving towards, let's say, remote working. But at the same time, after six to six weeks to three months, those companies start to experience that things start to become more and more difficult because people fall back in their known ways of working together. And the collaboration starts to degrade. They haven't, for example, found ways to question each other's assumptions through Zoom because when they are together in, in a room, they are able to, uh, or just before the meeting, there, there is a kind of a short interaction where trust is built and there happens something after the, after the meeting where they meet at the coffee machine uh, where things are kind of retaken and rediscussed and brought further into action. When people work remotely, the nature of the contacts they have is much more task-oriented and that plays into the card of certain developmental levels in the organization. People who act from a very instrumental, transactional, developmental phase won't have many difficulties in the beginning of working remotely, but after a few weeks, you start to observe that the relationship gets broken, that direct feedback is avoided, that uh, the trust starts to degrade and so on. Mm -hmm. So yes, many companies are confronted with, with new situations now in COVID, but even if you take a meta perspective and you look at it from the perspective of technological changes, well, it becomes clear that you need to start questioning underlying assumptions, that you need to find ways to uh, discuss mindsets or mind traps. But very, very few people have the tool set to do that and have the either maturity 
or the fluidity of thinking uh, to make it happen. And my research work centered around how can we build the maturity that corresponds with the evolving complexity of a situation and how can you build the fluidity of thinking that enables you to handle the challenges or the problems from a more richer or broader perspective and how do you design roles or let roles evolve in a way that uh, the complexity is embraced and that people really take accountability, ownership for what they do. I appreciate that. It strikes me that the biggest shift we're in right now is the acceptance of a greater level of responsibility, not just for ourselves, but also for our, how we interact, how organizations behave, how organizations respond. I mean, it's a very fractal uh, acceptance of, of greater responsibility for everything. Of course. And the responsibility takes in that well, pushes you, pushes one to take into account the large, larger pieces of the context one operates in. And for a CEO, that's the societal context, but for a labor worker, it are also the process, not only the tasks that he or she is doing or engaging in. So there is indeed a kind of stratification of work and uh, there is a huge push in towards starting to operate from a higher level of complexity at each level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Only working in, for example, the quality and service domain, uh, delivering specific services to clients are pushed to take into account data that enable them to optimize their practices towards that clients. And so everyone is asked to take from his or her level a kind of a meta perspective on the situation. What is their inspiration? And in that question, I'm going to ask you for your own inspiration. When, you, when you're dealing with these sometimes gnarly issues, what are you inspired by and what do you see people are being responsive to? I'm mainly inspired by three categories of thinkers. The first ones are a group of philosophers from, let's say, the 1920s onwards. Heidegger, Deleuze, Derrida, uh, mainly French thinkers, they start to look at, well, what is the core of one's experience? Husserl, for example, is also one of them. And the core of one's experience, they pointed our attention towards how people think and the structures of our thinking. And that was brought to maturity by philosophers such as Bashkar and researchers such as Vasegis and Otolaske. So that's my first source of inspiration. The second source of inspiration were a large group of colleagues starting mainly from Cleveland University, an appreciative inquiry that kind of pushed forward a different model of looking at organizations, organizations not as a problem to be solved, but organizations as a space that we create together. 
Tao, it's a kind of a dialogical space. And if you look at dialogue, of course you need to go a step further and look at the dialogical processes. And then you come, uh, you meet people like Argeris and Shine, and those were my second source of inspiration. Uh, contemporary uh, researchers or fellow uh, practitioners on that journey are uh, Gervais Bush, for example. Uh, third source of inspiration are people, are colleagues working on organizational design and started to look uh, at organizations in a systemic way. Uh, people like Stefan Beer, like Elliot Jack, like uh, Mark von Kliaf in the United States. So their main point of view was that in each organized context, you can see a stratification and you need to respect the stratified nature of things. They point our attention to the fact that uh, there is a hierarchy in complexity and you also see that thinking in developmental research that there is a hierarchy in how you can cope with complexity. So uh, I started to link organizational design approaches, mostly systemic approaches, with the stratified way of thinking in developmental research and cognitive developmental research. Uh, and I was mainly inspired there by Otto Laske, one of my teachers. In the meantime, Otto has gone very deep into the academic, really thinking through the philosophy of development and thinking through the new paradigm of the human capital. And I'm building a number of and practical tools and applying it to a functioning of teams. So the concept of uh, upwardly and downwardly divided teams is something we worked out together. Yeah, brilliant. The book you, your latest book is called Practices in Dynamic Collaboration, I believe? Yes. It's a, uh, a sequel on the Dynamic Collaboration Foundation book we wrote in 2018. Nice, nice. Now, in describing the stratification, uh, and, you know, in complexity, in the hierarchy of complexity. What I'm thinking about here is the match between stratification and collaboration. So we've got a, it, which are two very different visuals in my brain. Uh, how, do these, how do these things match up? How do, how do the stratification of development and the differences in development of everybody match up with how we work together using a diverse, different, you know, using these different perspectives to real advantage? Because some, many companies actually filter out diversity in order to simplify it and not deal with it, which I think works against them dramatically when you're talking about complexity. So how do you see that? Well, you can use the same scale to make an assessment of both realities. These are in many minds of people, separate realities. So if you look at the organization of work, uh, there is a kind of uh, lay layered uh, nature where the basic work is focused on the theme of quality and service delivery. Around that, there is a layer of uh, people working in the continuous improvement space. This is embedded in 
a dialogue space of value streams, end-to-end -end processes and operational models. This is on its turn embedded in business model space, which is embedded in the societal space. So we talk about five different we spaces, which have their own characteristics. For example, if you talk about project meetings and I have an accountability in project meetings, uh, usually projects are used uh, to improve things in the continuous improvement space. But in many uh, organizations, you see a kind of a fragmentation in project work. When that kind of work gets subject to a downwardly divided uh, dynamic, which pushes the project work into the continue into uh, even quality and small quality and service improvement, which is really not focusing on, on sub-processes. So we, we have a scale of different v-spaces with each one their typical vocabulary, their typical models used. For example, the business model canvas is a beautiful example in the business model vSpace. But if you look at the practice, many teams use it as a kind of a continuous improvement tool. Because they do not grasp the underlying complexity that allows you to examine. If you read certain passages in the business model canvas book, you see that, uh, or you can observe that pure logical thinking is used. It is as if, if you have a certain value proposal, that you can bring that value proposal to certain client groups through certain channels. That's a very logical way of analyzing. And what we found out was that each vSpace has its particular way of thinking. We call it uh, use of thought forms, structures of thinking that allow one to move beyond the logical analyt analytical thinking. And that's how individual development evolves from logical thinking to complex analytical thinking, to process thinking, to systemic thinking, then to transformational thinking. And what we saw that, that even transformational thinking, which if you look at really successful business modeling initiatives or re-business modeling initiatives, you see a kind of a coherence with the use of transformational thought forms. If you use the business model canvas in a purely logical, complex logical analytical way, there is a high probability that you will miss a lot in the context and you will miss to grasp the richness and the complexity in your situation. And you end up trying to learn from best practice, which amongst us best practice uh, becomes past practice. And especially in the business modeling space, you need to build yourself the emerging practice. So it needs a different type of thinking. And so we were able to highlight the coherence between the use of certain combinations of thought forms 
and operating in a certain vSpace. That's the, the first aspect. And the second aspect was that people also differ in terms of maturity. Normally, you become successful if you evolve through the vSpaces and you evolve towards a business modeling uh, accountability. There is a high probability that you will be more successful if you have evolved towards a more mature way of operating. But if you try to operate in that complex space from a very transactional, functional uh, maturity, you will not be able to uh, develop all the potential that is in that space. And you will even limit yourself seeing certain opportunities. And so what we uh, found out was that if you look at teams in a company, for example, a management team or another leadership team, uh, you have a certain either coherence in that team. We often call it, but yeah, that's a winning team. But winning teams very rarely pop up. Most companies, if they have uh, 100 teams, well, are very happy if they observe three or four real winning teams. Most teams are not winning. They are subject to a kind of a downwardly divided dynamic, which means that within the developmental differences in that team, the less developed part of the group tends to dominate the conversation. And in dominating the conversation, narrows the conversation, comes to more fragmented, poorer decision-making, while if the more developed subpart of a team takes the lead, then you have a higher probability of ending up in an upward dynamic and those people will realize more. They will find out ways of doing more within the timelines, with less budget, and so on and so on. So they, they will be labeled as more teams operating in a more holistic or integral uh, way. And that's what we want. So we brought to the surface how you can uh, start to influence the thinking process. Most process consultants in organizations have focused on introducing the how, uh, especially in an organization where there are a lot of engineers, the what tends to dominate the discussion. And as consultants, you bring in the how. And you can be very successful in doing that. What we added was, is how do we start to think about what we think and how we think about what we need to do. Yeah, so that's more of a reflective approach. So we build in the reflective approach uh, uh, to kind of invite every team member to evolve towards a kind of a critical practitioner role or a reflective practitioner role. Because we are so over-focused on behavior and uh, making sure we agree on what needs to be done, 
without examining the whole range of biases that we are subjected to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think also in the process, sometimes we completely ignore the other aspects of intelligence that are available, but not being accessed at all. And then by that, I'm thinking of when, when I'm working with emergence myself, I'm using a sensory capacity. It's not so much how I'm thinking about things. It's more suspending that so I can just listen to where, where is the movement within the system going and what is coming out of these uh, series of interactions and, and showing and presenting itself to, to be you know, a real opportunity in the moment. Yes, that's, so that, That's an essential step, but then you're pointing to how can I influence the process? Suspending is a moment in the process that is in a scientific way, we would say that's a necessary condition But the question we can ask ourselves is, is that a sufficient condition? It becomes sufficient sufficient when in the suspension, the range of perspectives available are able to express themselves and open the minds of the colleagues which still function from a narrower perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of an epistemological dimension that we need to add to that youth theory for example also points to the importance of finding your moment of inner reflection but if you don't have tools to examine the quality of that inner reflection mm-hmm. not every inner reflection is of equal quality no absolutely i mean this is where the quality of the question determines the quality of the answer so Yes, and if once you understand uh, and get insight in how you can generate uh, mind-opening questions that are situated on the edge of one's understanding, then you get a breakthrough in consultancy Mm -hmm. and in change processes. Because if you're doing that, you are not anymore confronted with with immunity to change dynamics. Yeah, and all of the psychology that goes with that. You know, this is really a multidimensional interaction that, that, that gets experienced in any kind of change. You're, you're really listening for all those layers and the, the capacity of doing so is based on the skill set you bring to it and, and yeah. also the, what you're open to in and, terms and of... And you know, a lot of consultants, based on their experience, master more thought structures than their clients. But about 25% uh, sticks to their framework, pushes their framework on the client's framework. And then you're up in a dysfunctional relationship. You're not helping the client anymore. I know. So, so this is, you know, I mean, one of the things, it's my pet peeve is models, I have to say. Mm-hmm. They model drive me nuts. And yet what I'm told is that companies need it. They need, they need to have the security of knowing you have a model and that you know what your model is. But it really, uh, I mean, so, okay, you can make one up. But the real, and just to make everybody feel better, sort of like the Superman scene where he's handcuffed just to make everybody feel safe and secure. And then he, you know, quickly draws his hands apart. And, and because you're stronger than that, you're stronger than most models. And, and the actual effectiveness in any organizational 
changes in the is in the customization, the customized responses to what does emerge. Because if you're not responsive to what emerges, then you aren't just doing that implant. You're just doing the superimposition of here's how it should go on top of you know something that's trying to emerge that's quite different. Depends. <laughs> customization is of course important, but customization can go in a downwardly and yeah, in downward sense or in an upward sense. Yeah. And customization needs to take into account the type of dialogue space that you want to use it in. For example, you have plenty of very useful lean frameworks. And most of those frameworks or models integrate a lot of insights from best practices. But what you see if you try to apply such a best practice framework is that the company does not see in what dialogue space that they are trying to integrate the framework and they start to reinterpret the framework. Mm. Yeah. Not uh, paying attention to the thought structures that they impose to the framework. And then they might customize but it might be the customization that will not help them. The moment when as a, an external facilitator or an internal facilitator, you start to pay attention to the quality of thinking directly, you have a much better, better chance that the framework will be customized on the level that it creates a kind of a mind-opening dynamic in the company. If the framework chosen was too complex for the situation and you try to stick to that complexity, the framework will be pushed away. Mm -hmm. uh, it will be customized, but it will, people will still push it away and after nine months or two years, you will see that the framework hasn't been embraced and then you will look for a different framework. But that's a bit of pity for all the work and the energy you put, you have put in that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think, I think, um, I mean, to me, this is not, a, each entry point is not rigid. It, it is, it is very much a, you know, there's a certain level of fluency that goes with every entry point in an organizational transformation. And so you've got all these tools available to you. And, and really what you're watching is what's the interaction of these tools with what's going on in the, with the human dynamic. And then, and then which direction is that going? Is it going in an upward spiral in a generative way or is it going in a downward spiral? And, mm -hmm. and, and what is there to sustain the movement as well, you know, to support the movement? Are people doing it out of fear, in which case it's going to crash epically afterwards? Are they doing it out of compliance, a desire to conform? Again, it's going to epically crash afterwards. So it's, it's really just watching and, and observing and sensing what, in my experience, sensing uh, where, where the uh, stickiness is for people to support yes. the new direction. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, we're running out of time here, I see. This, so I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. One is, um, well, first of all, the human-centric. There's a lot of talk about human-centric in you know, companies, human-centered cultures, human-centered organizations. What does that mean to you? The short answer is taking into account uh, developmental differences. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, there are very few organizations that take into account developmental differences. People are pushed in a behavioral scheme, competency scheme, or a skills uh, matrix, whatever. But they do not take into account differences in uh, sense and meaning making of individuals. Yeah, well said. Yeah, thank you. And, and secondly, I'm going to ask you, where should people go? I mean, one of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about is the game. You've got some really cool methods for people to experience different ways of seeing, different ways of thinking, different ways of opening up. And one of them that, that I, I really love is the game because games operate at an intrinsic motivation and inspirational level, not at anything, you know, I mean, that if you don't get it, it that's, that's what they tap into in such a, in such a beautiful way. Uh, so, so you've got that, where should people go for more information and what else would you like to add? Well, they can buy the rethinking game on uh, my website www.connecttransform.be From time to time I'm uh, giving inspirational sessions on the book or practice reflection sessions in organizations just to give people a sense of what it could mean for them the way of working. I also have a master class that can be followed. So there, there are plenty of tools that I can uh, distribute and that you can find on the website. Of course, my books. Uh, I have one small book with, with the title uh, The Dynamic Collaboration Playbook. Oh, wow, fantastic. Uh, it's a, a very uh, brief book with each time in four pages, uh, 33 ideas. Each idea explained on four pages and with the relationship between all the ideas. So each uh, small chapter ends with some uh, further exploration questions where you can see the connections with the other chapters. So you can read the books in more, that small book in more than a thousand ways. Wonderful. Wonderful. So this is the, this is what happens when you get a blend between practitioner and academia, which we started our conversation with before I pushed the record button. So Jan, I want to thank you very much for contributing to the uh, podcast program. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, if people have questions, they can always mail me. Jan at connecttransform.be. I will be happy to, uh, to answer the questions. And just to be clear, Jan is in Belgium. You probably figured that out, most of the yeah. listeners from the .be, but uh, that means uh, checking your time zone before you <laughs> make any phone calls. <laughs> yes. Jan, thank you very much for being on the program. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fromInsight2Action.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.